0: I think it's very difficult for a lot of students, especially if they're in a situation where they are pulled out for any academic class, because the other students notice pretty quickly that their friend isn't there. And they can often be labeled as stupid, or in some cases, other children envy them because they feel that they need extra help, but they're not getting it. The goal always is to try to mainstream children as much as you can and be able to support them within that, but then that model's also changed dramatically in the last couple of years.
1: Welcome to How to Have Kids Love Learning, where we explore ideas and strategies for parents and educators that help students thrive. I'm your host, Ed Madison. I'm a professor and researcher at the University of Oregon and serve as executive director of the Journalistic Learning Initiative, a nonprofit organization that empowers middle and high school students to discover their voice, improve academic outcomes, and become self-directed learners through project-based storytelling. Teaching students to become effective communicators is at the heart of JLI's work. Welcome to Betsy Ballard, who is a retired teacher, um, who taught in the Unionville-Chads Ford School District in Chester County, Pennsylvania, where she worked as a family and consumer science teacher and also in special education. Uh, We've known each other quite a while. I think we stopped counting the the number of years. Uh, We were students together at Emerson College in Boston and have reconnected recently after many years. And we're recently talking about special education and how she's worked to support parents who are trying to navigate Uh, Bureaucratic Systems to Get Appropriate Services for Their Children. Welcome, Betsy. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, So as I understand it, um, you know, there was initial legislation like in 1975 and then revised in 1990 as the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, and then again in 2004. And basically what it says is it affords students with special needs, uh, specially designed instruction at no cost. Um, but that may look different in different states. So um, help me unpack that for for parents who, um, you know, for some parents, they've been, you know, they've been living with this for some time, but for other parents um, who newly discover or suspect that their child may have special needs, um, they have no idea how to navigate, you know, all of that.
0: It can really be uh, pretty multifaceted. A lot has to do with what school district you're in, in terms of what kind of support you're going to receive. I know the one district that I live in looks at it very differently than the district that I taught in. And I know that people will move to different districts feeling that they're going to get either more supportive services or services that they feel their child needs, but the school might not. So you see a lot of movement amongst parents and families. And it all has to do with what they think their child needs, not necessarily what the system says that they need. So that can be kind of difficult to pair what the actual needs are with what the parents and the teachers think. Mm -hmm. And it is vastly different from state to state.
1: Mm -hmm. And there are, so a child who's designated with special needs will be, uh, there'll be a 50, 504, Section 504 plan, and then perhaps even an IEP, um, which um, stands for um, Individual Education Program, right? Um, mm-hmm. And those are the sort of the, the, the contract, if you will, with the school district as to what what's supposed to be provided, right?
0: Often the gateway is something called an IST, so an Instructional Support Team or teacher parses things out to really figure out is it something that they can quote unquote fix by having intensive instruction or should they go for something more intensive, which then would be the 504 and leading into an IEP. And oftentimes, school districts don't have an IST program, and that's why it sometimes goes directly to a 504. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, as I understand it, the IEP is is to be determined by the child's needs, not the district's budget. So, you know, if a parent encounters a situation where, um, you know, an administrator says, well, yeah, we can't afford that, <laughs> um, that's not the end of the conversation, right? I mean.
0: Not at all. And I was thinking about that this morning because I could name student after student who because the parents learned how to finagle the system and they were not happy with what the district was doing, they threatened them with due process. And the minute that you say that at an IEP meeting, school districts can go one of two ways. And I've seen it go where they will fight a parent in court, but I've also seen students who didn't necessarily qualify they were given a free ride at the school of their choice. So oftentimes the school might not, quote unquote, have enough money to provide the services. By the same token, rather than look bad, especially in the press, they'll provide a private school education for a child. Mm
1: -hmm. So
0: it's a very, very interesting and individual situation with each child
1: yeah and it's you know it's like many things i mean the the parents who have the wherewithal in terms of resources to to really make demands are the ones whose children most benefit um absolutely I, I i don't know if there's a way around that i mean particularly let's think about parents who english may not be their first language or um you know they just um for cultural, in terms of their cultural practices, they don't generally tend to make waves. Um, You know, do, do those, do their kids unfortunately fall through the cracks or?
0: I think sometimes they do. And it's interesting because the school district where I live where, which is only four miles from where I worked, I would say at least half the population are migrant workers because we're the mushroom capital of the world. And There's a long history of the Italian mushroom farm owners and the Hispanic workers. So you have an awful lot of children coming in that don't have English as their first language. So for a lot of families like that who may be uneducated themselves, they don't necessarily realize that their child is different or that they need something until they start to fall through the cracks to such a degree that the teacher raises the red flag and then something's done. But then you're dealing Mm -hmm. with trying to understand and work with a disability where there's also a language barrier. Mm -hmm. And the district that I worked in is predominantly white affluent. And it's known that if you move into that district and you make enough waves, that your child can get an IEP. And in some cases, the reason that someone would want an IEP for their child can be something as simple as they would like to have extended time on SATs and other standardized tests. And Mm -hmm. that can be written into the document. So I know of one student who had what they said was a spelling disability, and she actually she ended up testing out of the spelling disability but the parents did not want to let go of the iep so she was able to carry it through high school and get that extended time so Mm -hmm. there are there's a variety of reasons why a parent might want an iep and sometimes it's not necessarily to help support a child that really has learning differences
1: Mm-hmm. And that IEP, or at least these uh, accommodations, can follow a kid all the way through college, right to age twenty-one, as I understand it. Um, and uh, and it depends
0: and, on I, the severity of the dis- disability, too.
1: Yeah, and I would imagine that for children, um, and, you know, particularly as they reach you know late puberty and and start to transition into college, um, there's probably some issues around just not wanting to feel different amongst their peers. Um, and and, and, and I, I would guess that brings up a lot, a lot for kids and for parents who, who may wanna just sort of be more private and yet the fact that they're getting accommodations is public,
0: <laughs> you know? I think it's very difficult for a lot of students, especially if they're in a situation where they are pulled out for any academic class because the other students notice pretty quickly that their friend isn't there and they can often be labeled as stupid or in some cases other children envy them because they feel that they need extra help, but they're not getting it. The goal always is to try to mainstream children as much as you can and be able to support them within that. But then that model's also changed dramatically in the last couple of years.
1: Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about that a little bit, because I think it's controversial, uh, you know, amongst teachers and also amongst parents. I mean, um, how does it how have you noticed that it works effectively or, or, or how has it changed? You know, and how when it I first
0: work? started, I had a separate English class, a separate social studies class that was all self-contained. They were all with me for those specific classes. And then it changed into a co-teaching model where i would get together with the teacher i would know what they were going to do in some cases we co-planned with them so that we were exactly on the same page when it came to the lesson that day and then my students were included in those classes with me there as support now technically i was there to support my students but what ended up happening is if the regular ed teacher was at one part of the room and I was in another part of the room and a regular ed student had a question and I was closer then I could answer that question. So it normalized children who learn differently because they might be the one asking the regular teacher instead of me. And I think that that model was extremely beneficial and very healthy from a mental standpoint for my students but as I said, you know, it normalized it with the other students and now they've taken that model away. They have some pullout classes. They have most of the students in the regular classes with maybe one support class a day just to bring them up to speed with what they might be missing from that class. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, I know there's a, you know, um, I think it's some 13 categories of disability, and a lot of acronyms, um, you know, uh, uh, on these forms. And you mentioned that a parent can be handed, you know, um, in what's considered disclosure forms, but it's so dense in terms of what they're expected to make sense of that for many of them it just sort of they don't even try to read it. I mean. Um, Has there been a move to maybe try to simplify that or is it by intention that it's complicated or is that just the nature of government bureaucracy?
0: No, I think it's by intention because Mm. the bottom line with that paperwork comes down to if we're not doing our job, you have the right to sue us. And that's it in a nutshell. So I think all the legalese that's in there, it's, it's just like the IEPs. IEPs used to be... They were never short and sweet, but they used to be shorter and to the point. And because they are legally binding and the chances of you being hauled into court, if a parent is not happy, are so great that they've turned into 40, 50, 60 page documents that they kind of, I think it does a disservice to the child because in that document, you're saying, I will do this. But the other thing that I've seen happen, and it's not why I went into teaching, you have to prove through progress monitoring that the child is making meaningful progress because you have to report that back on a regular basis to the parents. And hitting the milestones that you as the teacher set become more important than getting to know the student, working with the student, um, doing the actual teaching it's almost like you are here because we want to make sure we accomplish a goal. And how are we going to do that? And I worked with a young man last year. He was cyber schooled the entire year. He had an IEP and his special ed teacher would call in once a week and give him a writing prompt and tell him, I want you to write this. And then I want you to send it to me so I can grade it. It, didn't work at all and this child made no progress because Mm -hmm. of the way the system had it set up and it really comes down to being able to check all the boxes Mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily checking the boxes for the child to have accomplished the goals and done better and i think oftentimes you know we we completely lose Side of the fact that what is all of this doing to the self-esteem of the child, as mm-hmm. opposed to holding them up to a certain standard and then helping them to reach that, so that they can feel good about themselves as well as learn.
1: Well, I think this is an appropriate time to to uh, to take a break for this conversation and pick up in a in a second episode with you because I want to talk about. COVID, um, post-COVID, and and its impact on students with special needs and some other topics. So we'll um, take a break here and and, um, and join you for a second episode. How to Have Kids Love Learning is produced by the Journalistic Learning Initiative. For more information about our work, please visit journalisticlearning.com.